I'm Dave Breckenridge, and you're listening to 10-3. Today, we dig into some of the background of the man charged with attempted murder for allegedly attacking a police officer and driving a U-Haul truck into four pedestrians. It's Tuesday, October 2nd. Last month, Johnny Wakefield, who covers crime for the Edmonton Journal and Edmonton Sun, had a brief conversation with the man at the center of one of the most serious crimes in that city's recent memory. So, Johnny, who was it that you talked to? So that is Abdullahi Hassan Sharif, who is the man accused in last year's truck attack in Edmonton. Um, the series of attacks, of course, began with a person behind the wheel of a car driving into an Edmonton police constable and then attacking him with a knife before there was a police chase with the same suspect through downtown Edmonton with him behind the wheel of a U-Haul truck. Is this the first time you've talked to him? Yes, it is. And it was a brief conversation, right? Yeah, we talked uh, on September 19th for about two minutes. He had uh, gotten in touch with me at the behest of his uh, romantic partner who I spoke with. And I really just wanted to get a hold of him to establish that this person spoke for him and that she was who she said she is. Because at this point, his lawyer doesn't really want him doing any interviews i'd take it no not at length it was it was basically a a confirmation this was as far as we know the first time that he's ever spoken to a reporter since these these really high profile events so the purpose of the conversation was to confirm the identity of his uh romantic romantic partner and this is all kind of culminating almost a year's worth of work into piecing together uh who sharif is and what his life was leading up to September 30th of last year. That's right. At the time, we knew very little about who this person was. We knew that he was 30 years old. We had a photo of him from police. We knew that he is a refugee from Somalia, and mm-hmm. we know that uh, police accused him sort of off the off the hop with committing a terrorism offense. No terrorism charges have been laid in this particular series of incidents. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was really all we knew about him. And over the past year, I've tried through various methods to piece together more about who this person is. Okay. Um, So what have you learned about him so far? So I spoke to his common law partner, as we mentioned, for around two hours. She Mm -hmm. agreed to speak with me. Um, His his lawyer essentially okayed this. And we, we chatted on the phone for about an hour at first just trying to piece together who Sharif is, as we said. And we learned a lot more about where he came from, Mm -hmm. sort of his life growing up in Somalia when it was really a war-torn country. And we know more, according to her, about his mental state in the lead-up to these events. So previously all we knew about him before was that he was a refugee from Somalia he had um, entered into the United States in 2011, roughly, um, and then entered into Canada about a year later, 2012. Uh, but we didn't know too much about him. So take us back briefly to his childhood and what was going on around uh, his young life. So the charging document says that he was born in 
1987 on mm-hmm. January 1st, which is interesting because sometimes they will put January 1st, not because they're a New Year's baby, but because they don't know their specific birth date. Yeah. And Mr. Sharif's partner confirmed to me that he is not exactly sure of the date he was born. He knows he was born in 1987. Mm-hmm. He's now 31 years old. And he was was born then uh, just a few years before essentially the collapse of the Somali state, um, which happened after the start of the Somali Civil War and the ouster essentially of the long-term dictator there. And we know that he did not have a a great life growing up, it sounds like. He was one of six siblings. He apparently had issues in school, learning difficulties. Mm -hmm. He would escape to the movie theater instead of going to school, and his parents were quite harsh with him because of that. We also know from his partner that for about two and a half, three years between um, 1998 and 2001, he was held and medicated in a hospital in Somalia, essentially, or under hmm. supervision at home. So he would have been quite young then. He would have been a preteen, yeah. essentially. And she also revealed to me that he had been captured, essentially, and held hostage by the Islamist group Al-Shabaab on two occasions. Right, because... You know, the the collapse of the Somali state, the civil war in Somalia, um, things didn't necessarily get a lot better in the intervening years either, right? Well, yeah, it, it sounds like the entire time he was there, it was very tumultuous and violent. Mm-hmm. And um, I think things have stabilized a bit since then. Yeah. Um, but certainly when he was there, this was a country that eventually he had to flee. Um, so... You get to a point where he's about 19 or 20 years old, where he decides that, and his family decides it'd be safer for him to leave the country, right? Right. Uh, in 2008, we know that he sort of started this journey to to get out of Somalia, essentially. And uh, this was sort of precipitated by his second run-in with al-Shabaab. They killed um, what his partner said it was his uncle mm-hmm. and a friend. Um, he had earlier been held in either 2005 or 2006 for about 50 days at a facility uh, north of Mogadishu. They mm-hmm. essentially enslaved him. They made him do work. They threatened to kill him. They locked him up at night. And at some point, a militant is is driving with him and another prisoner, and he stops for gas, and they just make a break for it. And so they run off in opposite directions with their hands bound. He described to her basically being under a a hail of bullets he runs towards uh, an army checkpoint which was apparently an ethiopian army checkpoint and they shot at him they thought he was carrying explosives or something and then they realized his hands were bound and they took him prisoner and held him for about two weeks okay so uh that was sort of his first run in with that group and then um later on after they had killed some people close to him uh, it sounds like he had some money and support from family to essentially get out of the region and in 2008 he began this journey that would eventually bring him to canada okay and so it starts in somalia he obviously needs to leave africa across the ocean what what what's the typical path for someone who's trying to make that journey where do they go or in this case where did he go right i understand talking to um some people in the somali community here that this is sort of a common path that they will um you know, somebody will leave Somalia, typically go to Kenya and be there for a bit, either in a refugee camp or 
um, living outside one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sharif then went to three or four different African countries before reaching, I believe, Angola, which is where he met some people who were traveling to Brazil, which, like I said, apparently is a fairly common path for refugees from Africa. It's, an e- it's easier to get there. It's okay. easier to get visas than going through Europe or just trying to get straight to North America. So he makes his way to Brazil, and we're not sure how long he is there. Um, the period we're talking about here is between sort of 2008 and um, 2011. So he's there long enough to get work basically slaughtering chickens is, is what we understand. Mm-hmm. And then at some point he makes his way to Mexico. We think he went direct from Brazil to Mexico, so presumably he would have had to fly or I don't know if he could have taken a boat or something. But he, in early 2011, actually uh, July 2011, I believe, shows up at the U.S.-Mexico border at the San Isidro crossing, which mm-hmm. is between San Diego and Tijuana. Um, and that's sort of up to now. We knew he was in Somalia. We knew he showed up at that border crossing. We knew he made his way to Canada. That's what we knew up until I got a chance to speak with his partner. Yeah. So at the U.S.-Mexico border, he was deemed inadmissible to the u.s correct well he essentially showed up with no paperwork ah okay um and they placed him in immigration detention at the ote mesa facility Mm -hmm. which is a fairly large immigration detention facility um again it was essentially he he didn't uh this was the immigrations and customs enforcement that he was dealing with ice they said he didn't have any known criminal record at the time and this was just he didn't have the paperwork or reason to be in the US. Mm-hmm. We're not clear if he made an asylum claim. It seems likely that he would have. That seems to have been his only option since he didn't have any paperwork or anything. Um, but eventually, an immigration judge later in 2011 determines that he should be deported to Somalia, that they essentially didn't accept him. Mm-hmm. So, does he stay in custody? He's eventually released because of a court ruling that says essentially the U.S. can't hold you indefinitely in immigration detention. And the reason why you know, the, the duration of his incarceration was in question is because they couldn't immediately deport him to Somalia. Mm-hmm. At the time, the U.S. wasn't doing that. They have since started doing that again under the um, new administration, I believe. Uh, but at the time, there was no government in Somalia that was recognized. And they couldn't send him back there, so they were essentially forced to let him go pending some further action on his deportation. So one of the big questions that we were left with after he was charged in 2017 was, how did he get here? Where did he cross? Um, Did he come straight up from California and cross in B.C. or Alberta? You know, where did he wind up in Canada? And and that's one of the pieces that you were able to dig up as part of your story was that uh, he ended up going far northeast. Yeah, he went to Buffalo, New York, Mm -hmm. which I established uh, a couple different ways, including through his partner. So he, after being released, he made his way up there. He was supposed to in January, towards the end of January of 2012 he was supposed to check in with ice in Mm -hmm. san diego he didn't do that and we now know that's because he had essentially gone across the country we're not sure how he did that but Mm -hmm. he got to buffalo which is apparently a a fairly 
commonplace for refugees to try to make claims in Canada. There's a shelter there specifically where people can live and basically wait for appointments with Canadian immigration officers at the border. Mm -hmm. We're not sure if he stayed at this particular shelter, but he eventually gets a hearing and apparently enters the country in uh, early January of uh, 2012. The Canada Border Services Agency wouldn't confirm where specifically he crossed or the specific date. All they Mm -hmm. would say it was 2012 and that he was later found to be a refugee. Okay. And the public safety minister in the wake of this said that there were no red flags that would have um, precluded him from entering the country or filing a refugee claim. And uh, they later said that he was found to be a convention refugee, which is someone who has a a well-founded fear of persecution in their home country. We'll be right back. I want to tell you about a discount we're offering exclusively for 10.3 listeners on all Post Media Digital subscriptions so you can get access to more great reporting on the issues that matter to you. When subscribing to the National Post, the Ottawa Citizen, the Montreal Gazette, the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, Regina Leader Post, Edmonton Journal, Calgary Herald, or the Vancouver Sun, just enter promo code PODCAST and you'll get 50% off a one-year digital subscription. It's a great way to stay informed. Again, that's promo code PODCAST. So he enters Canada in 2012. He winds up in Alberta, um, and he's charged in 2017. What have you learned or been able to find out about those the intervening five years? Yeah. To go back a little, I spoke to his partner on the condition that she not be named because she has mm-hmm. concerns for her safety. And she was with him from... Um, she met him in 2016 and they, um, got closer and eventually moved in together in 2017 and lived together for about a year. And she gleaned obviously bits and pieces of his life. She doesn't know specific dates Mm -hmm. or when he went where or what have you, but she thinks she, she understands he was in Ontario for about a year before coming to Edmonton. And it sounds like he came here just because of the the demand for labor um, at the time in the province, um, in his particular case, unskilled labor. So we think he came to Edmonton probably in 2013 or 2014. Mm -hmm. We learned immediately after the um, incidents that he had gone to Catholic Social Services to ask for their help applying for a work permit, which apparently he needed in addition to his um, refugee status. He went to them and asked for this help but didn't show up a few days later so that's sort of the first time we officially see him uh, appearing in Edmonton she said at first he worked separating recycling from garbage at a facility here and then eventually he got in with a contractor and was doing like labor and construction work and most recently he was working as an insulator which is work that would have taken him around to various towns in, Mm -hmm. in and around Alberta So how did the two of them meet? They met in 2016. She was working um, at an office building that she was, she was part of a cleaning crew. Mm -hmm. And one of um, Abdullahi's friends was on this cleaning crew and would occasionally, when they got off work at about 9.30 in the evening, would call him for a ride. He was apparently very reliable in this respect. And 
she did not like him at first. She said hmm. there were times where she would rather take a take a bus than get a ride with him. He was certainly just kind of standoffish and awkward at first and her friend, their mutual friend, insisted over and over again, he's a really nice guy when you get to know him. You guys just got off on the wrong foot. Okay. And apparently the feeling was mutual. Mutual. She would just kind of not talk to him in the car. And so there <laughs> was this um, kind of feedback loop where one was rude to the other and the other was um, rude to rude. them. And so, yeah. yeah, eventually somehow, though, they they warmed to each other. She said they would go out and just hang out as a group of friends, sometimes at Tim Hortons, and then eventually they started dating and uh, eventually moved in together, though he did keep a separate apartment from hers. What did you say the relationship was like? She is still with him, okay. uh, just to be clear. She's still with them, him and uh, is advocating for him in the legal system. Um, and, you know, she said she was he's a really sweet guy, but that he clearly had mental health issues that weren't being dealt with. Okay. She was able to glean from him and his mother the... Um, the fact that he had been hospitalized as a young man and medicated for something. He told her the specific thing that he described to her was manic depression, um, also known as bipolar. Yeah. Um, and that that was something that he had struggled with, but that he really had kind of tried to keep under wraps because of various taboos about that. Okay. Um, specifically in the Somali community and I think more broadly. Um, so she began to be really concerned in 2017 about his mental state. Mm -hmm. They had moved in together. As I said, he basically kept an apartment to hang out with friends because they didn't know about their relationship. Okay. They weren't married. They weren't, uh, she describes herself as, um, his common law, but we've just been calling her partner because yeah. we don't think he was, they were actually legally common law. Okay. Um, and so she said he would really have issues at night that he would sort of thrash around. He would um, like unintentionally hurt her by doing that. He would see things that weren't there, hear mm -hmm. things that weren't there. He would think, you know, while they were lying in bed that he was being chased by someone who wanted to kill him. There was a snake in the room that the hmm. ceiling was closing in on him, these sorts of things. And she described to me one incident where he said, can you just give me a, a mattress so I can sleep in the the living room? And she was confused by this and was like, what's wrong? What's the matter? And he basically said that he was concerned someone was after him and he wanted to jump off the balcony hmm. and that he wanted that option available. And they were on the third floor and she was like, well, you'll really badly hurt yourself. And she'll say, well, uh, my bones will be broken, but at least I won't be dead. So that's sort of the mental state she described to me in the lead up to all this. Now, you say that they're still together, but did those issues put uh, a rift between them or cause any uh, separation in their relationship? Yeah, eventually in the, in the month or so before this happened, um, she had kind of broken it off of them. She said, you need to go to a doctor, mm -hmm. and he apparently refused to do so. And she had taken his keys, and the last she saw him was like in mid-September when she met him at a restaurant to collect a a tablet, I guess, that um, she had left at his place or something okay. like that. And she went off to work um, at a worker camp yeah. outside of Fort McMurray where she was doing cleaning work and reception and that sort of thing. So season mid-September 2017 and then September 30th comes. Um, 
man drives a car into Constable Mike Chernick, uh, who's working outside the Edmonton Eskimos game at Commonwealth Stadium. Um, man gets out of the car, stabs him. Uh, they tussle, and then the guy takes off. And then not long later, um, police stop a U-Haul truck, and uh, the driver uh, takes off and heads downtown and, and causes carnage on, on Jasper Avenue. Um, some point it comes out, uh, that Sharif is charged. What was her reaction to the incident and the charges against her partner? She had initially heard of what happened the day after from a coworker who was sort of like, did you hear what happened in Edmonton? There was a, you know, a terrorist attack. They've arrested this guy. And she essentially was at first like, okay, did, was anyone killed? And then she learned that no, no one was killed. And she sort of put it out of her mind. Mm-hmm. And you know, she said, that's, that's, that's really good. That's very lucky that that happened. Um, she said she sort of hates hearing about terrorism and terrorists because of her time in Somalia. Yeah. That's where she is originally from. And she said that they made their lives miserable back home and she hates hearing about it essentially. But after a bit of time, she is uneasy and somebody shows her the YouTube video of the scene and she realizes that the car is, is Abdullahi's. Uh, the, she said she the drove car the car that, yes, that hit the constable. Cop. Okay. Yes. She said, I've driven that car. I recognized it instantly. And mm-hmm. she started calling him and there was no answer. And she called his friends and they didn't know what was happening. Wow. Um, after the incident, uh, officials called it an act of terror. Uh, it made international news because there was uh, a flag in the car. It looks like the ISIS flag. Um no terrorism charges have been laid against Sharif, but did his partner talk at all about that or discuss whether he uh, was following any um, extremist religious views or, or any teachings like that online? Was there any discussion of that in your conversation? No, and um, sort of the condition that I spoke to her was that we wouldn't talk about specifics of the case because okay. it's yet to go to trial. RCMP at the time said that they looked into Sharif in 2015 because he had been, quote, espousing extremist rhetoric. They haven't been clear about what he is alleged to have said, but mm-hmm. they didn't lay any charges and they didn't pursue any investigation. And that was sort of that. But she really painted this as a guy with severe mental, mental health issues who yeah. essentially had had a break. Um, that's sort of her understanding of of what happened in her explanation. Did, you, did she discuss whether uh, he was practicing any religion, anything like that? She said he was, he's Muslim, but yeah. he was not particularly religious at all. Okay. She said that uh, she would basically have to, you know, twist his arm to get him to, to go to um, services at the mosque. Okay. And that he would, uh, during Ramadan, claim to be fasting. And she was just able to see through that immediately that he was, that that was a ruse. Mm-hmm. Um, so it did, it does not sound like religion, according to her, played a large role in his life at the time. She was concerned about his mental health. Uh, you had mentioned earlier that, um, when he was a preteen or teenager that he was hospitalized for mental health concerns. Um, 
I assume this has come up in the court proceedings as well, that there's a question, there would have been a question of whether he's fit to stand trial. Right. So there were two assessments that his defense lawyer at the time requested, one for fitness to stand trial and one for um, not criminally responsible, which is essentially a way for the court to understand, was this person capable of understanding what they're alleged to have done? Mm -hmm. Um, Were they essentially in possession of their faculties? Could they determine right from wrong? Um, And the fitness to stand trial is basically, can they understand legal proceedings and the jeopardy that they face? And both of those came back against the defense, essentially saying that he's fit to stand trial and that not criminally responsible is not a defense that he can use essentially his lawyer says they're going to look for a a second opinion on that and it's scheduled to go to trial in october of 2019 all right and as you said before the the partner um who you spoke with she's standing by him uh, yes they're they're still together and she's advocating for him and she talks to him and, and visits him while he's incarcerated now the you say the trial's next October. It seems a long time between when he was charged and when it's going to trial. Yeah, a lot of people have looked at the dates for the trial and asked, is that a typo? And it's like, no, that's, that's when it is scheduled for. Mm-hmm. That's within the window that they're, they're, that allowed, they're allowed to bring, okay. bring a matter to trial. All right. Well, it's definitely a, a great piece of reporting, Johnny. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you. If you want to read more about uh, Sharif, uh, what his partner had to say about him, definitely check out Johnny's story. Uh, You can find the link in the show notes. We'll be right back. Here's what else is happening. After more than a year of talks and with a deadline fast approaching, Canada and the U.S. came to an agreement on NAFTA. The new deal sees Canada give up concessions on the dairy industry and sets some limits on auto parts exports to the U.S., among other concessions, but keeps in place a special dispute process which Canada had been seeking. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said Monday that Canada had to make some difficult compromises. Quote, we never believed it would be easy, and it wasn't, but today is a good day for Canada, Trudeau said. Other than the dairy concessions, the deal included no assurance that tariffs will be lifted on Canadian steel and aluminum, which upset the United Steelworkers of Canada. Quote, the Liberals made concession after concession until the Trump administration got the deal it wanted, the union's Canadian director, Ken Newman, said in a statement. 10-3 is produced by Carson Tarama and Carrie Ann Sprawl. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.